I can think of one evangelical scholar actually believes in inerrancy. The rest have all abandoned it. Uh, now they may they may they may give a rubber stamp and say, I believe in inerrancy, but then you start pushing what does that actually mean? And well, inerrancy doesn't mean no errors. Uh it, it, the whole and I think this is why the church is in such trouble in the Western world these days. The authority of scripture is gone because our scholars have come to believe this kind of stuff. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went. It blew into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Weird Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 91. I interviewed John Tours about the majority text, critical text debate. So for those that aren't familiar, you may notice that when you read the KJV, you're going to find subtle differences between uh, other translations like the ESV or NIV. And that is essentially uh, what we're talking about is because those translations are using different Greek manuscripts. And so we get into why he favors the majority text, uh, Bible translations, and biblical inerrancy. So hope you enjoy. With no further ado, let's get weird. All right. Welcome on. I'm I'm really excited about this topic. This is one, just to give a little background, I'm not even sure how to title this episode, but I basically, um, I bought a, have you ever heard of a Westminster reference Bible? I've heard the name. I've never used it. Okay. So it has over 200,000 references and I got it thinking it would be just, uh, I would use it as a reference, um, for the references. But as I started to be, to read the King James, I really just fell in love with it. Um, and I had already like listened to the audio Bible through the King James, um, just, you know, the year prior. And, um, I just though, as I kept reading the King James, I just sort of fell in love with it, but I did notice, um, as I was reading it, instead of listening to it, that there were differences in certain phrases and words that were coming up, like the sons of Belial. Um, and then there was like, Paul's conversion was a little bit different. Uh, and then I noticed in the Psalms, as my pastor was reading through the ESV, there were very subtle differences. And um, so eventually, after more digging, I kind of came up on this topic, found um, a debate that you did, which was over the the critical text versus the majority text. And these are things and topics I just had no idea uh, even existed uh, prior to mm-hmm. kind of me reading the King James um, and just kind of for myself figuring out there's differences. I've always seen footnotes that talked about earlier manuscripts read this way or the, you know, the ending of Mark not being in earlier manuscripts and things like that. So I, I was sort of aware uh, that this sort of thing existed. Um, but I was uh, delighted to kind of dig into it deeper. And I think hopefully this will just be a topic that um, can enlighten some people. And maybe for those that uh, are unaware or are on the fence or um, just never heard of it, can can do some digging on their own. Uh, so thanks for coming on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not that well known, actually, among uh, the Christian community this topic mm. and it needs to be better known. Yeah. So I'm thrilled to have you on for those that, um, 
uh, are unfamiliar uh, with you, can you just uh, kind of introduce yourself, give us a little bit of background uh, as far as uh, yourself and how you got into this topic of the majority text? Sure. Uh, I've been a Christian well over 40 years now and involved in apologetics, first just personal study and then reaching out for almost that long. Uh, my background, educational background, my undergrad was in chemical engineering. I worked in engineering for a few years, and then I went to seminary where I did my MDiv. Uh, where I got on this topic, interestingly enough, and I think this was very helpful to me, is the first time I ever encountered it was my early days when uh, I was looking for apologetics books. I found out such a thing exists, and I, I picked up one that was by uh, Josh McDowell and Don Stewart called Reasons Skeptics Should Consider Christianity. And this was uh, had a lot of questions and then about a page and a half to two and a half pages answering each one. So it's just kind of wetting your feet on it. Yeah. And he brought up that question. Like, so why do some people say the Texas Receptus is the best? And that was the first encounter I had, first time I even heard about this kind of thing. Mm. And he said, look, there's two sides here. Some people say majority is better. Some people say earliest is better. And he gave a few of the arguments for each side, so they're good people on both sides. And I think that was crucial for me that the very first time I encountered I heard there were two sides. It was very different from when, for example, evolution. Uh, I believed in evolution long before I believed in, in Christ, uh, because it was always presented like there's just this one side. There, there's no other side. This is fact. This is the way it is. Uh, and it wasn't until you know something came along that said, oh, yeah, look, there's another side. And that kind of like hit me with like, oh, wow. Uh, and I think for this issue, and um, I call textual criticism, it's like that. People hear about it here that this is the way it is, and they don't even know that there is another side. So they don't know that they are to dig into it. Mm. And it's, it's fun. When I preach on this, actually, I've done this a couple of times. What I do, I start out by uh, calling up 10 people to the front, and they're, they're bringing their NIV or ESV mm -hmm. or NASV. So we're going to have a little contest. I'm going to give assign each of you a verse. And whoever finds it first, read it out right away. It's a race. Yeah. yeah. They give them these 10 verses and they start open their Bibles. They start looking for it and they can't find them. Yeah, they're not in there. I'm like, like Matthew 18, 11. I look in there. There's not. It goes from Matthew 18, 10 to Matthew 18, 12. I look 23, 17. They look for it and they see 23, 16. They see 23, 18. There's no 23, 17. And they never noticed that before. And it's kind of like a good punchy way to introduce the topic. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So I'm a high school uh, Bible teacher, and I basically just kind of do one lesson on translations. Um, and I we, we read about the Texas Receptus and, and things like that, um, but I thought this would be and that I kind of had that idea too, um, just to without saying anything, just hey, look up this verse and wait for someone to say, oh, it's not in there. Um, uh, but even just having that little background, it's just so funny how so many people are just so completely unaware. When I kind of found out about this, it was sort of, it blew my mind. I, like no one told, I didn't find out about the debate or anything like that. I just stumbled upon a ver a familiar verse, which was Saul's conversion, um, <laughs> where Jesus shows up and says, why are you persecuting me? And that is what I read my entire life. And I'm reading the King James version. And he says, why are you persecuting me? And then it, there's it's an, hard for you to kick against the goats. So. There's an additional like line, and it it, it yeah. hit me like 
a ton of bricks. When I read that, I was like, what? What? What is that? Because um, I'd never heard it before. So it just, it was like, okay, well, I, I, I know the King James is different. Um, and then I, I just kind of finally figured out why. So for those that are unfamiliar with this topic, uh, when you run into those things, basically, this is my understanding. You can correct me or give a, a better explanation. But, um, you know, from what I can understand, we have uh, our English translations, and some of them are built off of what's known as the critical texts, which are earlier manuscripts. And then we have um, like the KJV and the NKJV, which uh, are kind of built off the Texas receptives, which are more majority texts. So they are um, the received texts that were there, you know, in the 1600s when that was translated. And then since then, you know, they found other other manuscripts because they're earlier. That's kind of been the preferred um, manuscript for certain translations, which is why there's these subtle differences, nothing, nothing crazy, but things that are, you know, I would love to de to debate and really dig into because there is, although it's not major significant in terms of what Christians believe, um, there are interpretational differences on, on how you would read a certain verse or passage. So um, anyway, again, you can add anything else to uh, kind of like our topic. I feel like I have to kind of introduce this topic um, mm -hmm. because uh, it's probably so unfamiliar to so many people that are right. listening to this. Yeah, so maybe I'll give a, a bit of a background. I'm going a little bit further back than that. And you know what? Actually, it's a lot more than just some interpretational differences. You're going to find this is a very, very crucial topic. Uh, background, though, uh, in the Western world, you know, we have nice printed Bibles, and the printing press though, wasn't invented until the mid-15th century. So up until that time, every piece of literature, including the Bible, could only be reproduced by hand copying. Uh, so you'd have these scribes who would sit in their, their scriptorium uh, and they'd be copying on vellum or in the early days on parchment. And you can imagine how much work and effort it is to copy the Bible one time. And the best efforts they would do, they would still make some mistakes when they copy. Nobody could copy perfectly. I have actually, a, a, this is a 13th century Bible manuscript. So mm -hmm. it's not Greek. This is a Latin Vulgate page. So you take a close look at that. Imagine trying to copy that. You're going to make an awful lot of mistakes when you do right. that. Yeah, and that's like a regular sized page. This is one that they would uh, they made for the uh, Crusaders when they went to Holy Land. This is 13th century. Mm. <laughs> Imagine you're going to make mistakes. So as the number of copies of manuscripts uh, increased through the centuries, so did the number of these they call variants, where you look in one manuscript and you see it says something. You look in another manuscript, you see a little different thing. Like, for example, you might see that line about it is hard for you to kick against the goads, or maybe you won't see it. And so printing press was invented. Now they came uh, to print things. And uh, one company decided, you know, there's a market for the Greek New Testament, a printed copy. Mm. And uh, things, some things don't change. There's one company commissioned a fellow named Cardinal Jimenez to put together a carefully prepared Greek copy of the New Testament, uh, a rival comes that, you know, get to the market first. And they hired this guy named Desiderius Erasmus to put together a Greek New Testament with the mandate being do it as soon as possible so we can get to market first. And so he put it together, 1516, uh, his first edition, I believe, uh, and to do it as quickly as he could, he just took the manuscripts he could get his hands on. 
uh, about 10 of them, and none of them before the 10th century. So they're not early manuscripts. And he put together this edition and it went to print and yeah, it caught the market share. So like VHS over beta. Hmm. It wasn't necessarily better, but it got to market first. And, and this became the sign. He, he did four more editions before he died. And there, yeah, he improved it. He got more manuscripts. And this got taken over by other publishers. Uh, the second edition of the Elsevier Brothers, publishing in 1633 in their uh, introduction, they said, this is the text now received by all. And that's where the term received text in Latin textus receptus comes from. And as time went on, especially got into the 18th century, got into the time of the Enlightenment, and unfortunately you had this rise of historical criticism. Uh, the intellectuals wanted to undermine the Bible, wanted to get rid of it. And you had historical criticism, textual criticism, Darwinism coming to the fore. Uh, and they started saying, like, how? When you look at these manuscripts and you see differences between two manuscripts, how do you decide which is the original? And that's actually what this all comes down to. Yeah. How do you decide? And the uh, the first step, this fellow uh, named, uh, uh, what's his name? And then somewhere, um, first guy, Bengel, Johann Albrecht Bengel in 1725 said, look, we've got all these manuscripts. Let's put them, let's class them into families. Okay? And he came up with these three families or what they're called to be text types. And then uh, Semler, a little later, uh, said that these are all recensions. Every one of these text types came from an, uh, an edited version. You didn't have these, these just copied manuscripts straight from the autograph. It said at some point, some person or person sat down and kind of rewrote the Bible, rewrote, made editorial changes the way they thought was best. And uh, you said there are three text types. There's the Byzantine, there's the Western, and there's the Alexandrian. Okay. And the names changed a bit through, through the decades, but those are the three text types. And then the next development, and this is crucial, 1796, a German rationalist scholar named Johann Jakob Griesbach published 15 rules, 15 rules on how to pick among variants. Mm. Now, in my debate with, with Dr. Costa, when I brought up the fact that uh, Griesbach was a rationalist, he, he said, like, you know, that's like an ad hominem attack. Uh, but it wasn't because I, my point was not that that he was like a bad guy. My point was that uh, was, was that rationalism is a particular school of philosophy. And it's a school of philosophy on uh, how we know things, epistemology. And the rational rationalist says you don't need to look at evidence. True knowledge comes from just figuring out in your mind what's the best way to see things. And he made these 15 rules based on what seemed to make sense to him. He didn't look at any actual manuscripts to see, well, what did scribes do? No, he just made the rules out at the top of his head. 15 other rules. Uh, there was a lot of overlap. A lot of the rules were just saying the same thing in different ways. Uh, but it came down to four rules. And behind them, there was, there was one principle. And here's what a lot of people don't know, that all of textual criticism to this day is all based on those four rules. 
and new manuscripts found, old manuscripts found. Those are all interesting, but it's these four rules that rule to this day and the, uh, the principle behind them. So his four rules were, number one, we called Lectio, Brevi, or Potier, which means that the shorter reading is to be preferred. So mm -hmm. if you have, like in, in Paul's conversion, if you have that uh, thing, why do you uh, persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Another manuscript just says, why do you persecute me? That must be the original because it's shorter. And why? what's the basis for that? Really? He said, well, scribes, the people making the copies, they were much more prone to add to the text than to omit. Right. Uh, so the longer one then can't be the original. Hmm. Uh, number two, Lectio Difficilior Potior. The more difficult reading is to be preferred. And, and listen to this, because this is a quote translated, of course. Uh, that reading is rightly considered suspect that manifestly gives the dogmas of the Orthodox better than the others. And so what that means is wherever you have two variants, one of which says what Christians believe and one of which says something different, the different one must be the original. Anytime, yeah. Anytime you have a, a reading that makes a mistake, that must be the original. And his reasoning for this also was that I was a rationalist figuring out his mind that, well, you know, a scribe, if he, he's making the copy and he comes across an error, like he knows, oh, this is this is a geographical error, he would want to fix it. Mm -hmm. Which means the error is the original. Right, yeah. Uh, number three, the reading that best explains the origin of the others is to be preferred. So you kind of try, you've got the two readings, you know, how, how, uh, which one better explains how the other one came about? Uh, this is not actually a very useful rule because it's very subjective. Yeah. And how would you ever know? Yeah, and, and generally it's a saw-off. If we go back to your, your passage there about Paul, well, uh, the longer reading might have been original and the rest was accidentally omitted. Good explanation. Uh, Griesbach would say, well, the shorter one was original and the scribe added more. How do you decide? And then the fourth reading was uh, fourth rule was the reading that differs from quoted or parallel material is to be preferred. It was basically another way of saying if there's a discrepancy, if there's a contradiction, and you have a choice of two variants, one makes a contradiction with some other part of the Bible, and the other one doesn't, pick the one that makes a contradiction. Again, same rationale that well, the scribe would be more inclined to uh, to fix a mistake. Contradiction. My gosh. My so, gosh. Yeah. So what this did, and whether it was intentional or not, we'll never know, this side of eternity. The result of this was to, to well, destroys inerrancy, because it says that the, like, all these errors, they're part of the original text. It must have been original. And I can give you a bunch of examples of those, uh, these kind of readings that are now all accepted into your NIV or ESV your NASB and so on. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get into the weeds later, but yeah, um, yeah just taking a, a pause there. I'm so glad you brought that up. And that was part of one of your major points in the debate that I think is pretty crucial um, to this topic is this idea of inerrancy. And you start going down that line with the 
the kind of those rules and, and looking at the text critically. Um, and, you know, the listener might even think this as they're listening to you talk, it, it, there's all these seeds of doubt that are just starting to sprout up and you kind of begin to question, can the text itself even be trusted at all? Because you're coming to it with the idea already that the text itself has been corrupted that we when we see differences already there's a presupposition that there's differences because a scribe made the differences intentionally for the purpose of doctoring up um the the text fixing mistakes um or intentionally putting in christian doctrine um where it perhaps wasn't there before so it kind of creates this dichotomy where you have on one hand you look at the bible as because i'm thinking of certain texts where you have very clearly written um christian doctrines and others where um it's not it's not there so are you on the side it's 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 just so 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 touchy because i can actually i can see uh where the, those rules kind of make sense to a certain to a certain degree, I, I can really understand at least that mentality. Um, but what it does, again, once you embrace it, it uh, it leaves you with having to at least, I think, wash a little bit further away this this concept of inerrancy, where you now are redefining it a little bit, and and, and a lot of times you get this kind of apologetic where yes there's inerrancy but we don't have the original manuscripts yeah. so we really don't really know if what we have can be trusted or not so um can you yeah i mean i was gonna invite you to talk about whether or not we we can trust the text um mm -hmm. uh sure. Yeah, maybe we'll go there, and, I, and then and then uh, we'll we'll go from there. Yeah. Uh, be before I do that, though, I will point out what you're saying is absolutely correct. And the trade secret in evangel and this is evangelical scholarship, not just liberal scholarship anymore. I can think of one evangelical scholar who actually believes in inerrancy. The rest have all abandoned it. Uh, now they may they may they may give a rubber stamp and say I believe in inerrancy. But then you start pushing, what does that actually mean? And well, inerrancy doesn't mean no errors. Uh, it, it, the whole, and I think this is why the church is in such trouble in the Western world these days. The authority of scripture is gone because our scholars have come to believe this kind of stuff. And, and this is, mm -hmm. as I say, this is textual criticism. There's also historical criticism. There's also uh, Darwinism. But this, this one is different because... If you could say, say Darwinism, the, the scientists will tell you, look, what the Bible says about creation is wrong. Okay? Bible's wrong. And you can say, well, I don't believe what you say. I believe the Bible. Okay? The, the challenges are external. But with this, it's the Bible itself that's wrong. The Bible itself has the mistakes. Mm -hmm. How can you keep yeah. going to the to, to the to inerrancy? You can't. Mm -hmm. But then here's the good news. And again, coming from the point of view of an engineer, uh, another school of epistemology, how we know things, is uh, empiricism. Look at the facts. 
did scribes really, were they prone to add material? Were they prone to fix errors? Well, finally, in the 20th century, uh, a number of studies were done on this. C.C. Uh, Torelli, for example, back uh, in 1938, it was published in Journal of Theological Studies, where, where he studied the omissions, additions, and conflations in the Chester Beattie papyri. Papyri is, is a, a right, it's a type of paper. The oldest Bible manuscripts were written on that. That's what was used in those days. Um, then Ernest Cadman Caldwell, uh, Scribal Habits in the Early Papyri in 1965. Uh, PM Head, The Habits of New Testament Copyists uh, in Biblica in 2004. And then this book, which is a huge volume, came out in 2008. Scribal Habits in the Early Greek New Testament Papyri. Look at the size of this thing. Yeah. And what every single one of them found is that the most common error is accidental omission. They found that scribes don't actually really add things. They don't. Where, where you see between the long and the shorter, you should actually take the longer because the most common error is accidental omission. And then meanwhile, another scholar, uh, Dr. Michael J. Kruger, he said, well, we've never looked at what the early Christians said about this. Did they say, yeah, sure, change the Bible? Or did they say, don't? Sure, yeah, yeah. And he, he went through, through a lot of these early Christian writings, and he found what's called the inscriptional curse. You know, in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 4, 2, it right, says, you yeah. shall not add to the word which I command you to take from it. Mm -hmm. Same thing in Proverbs 30, verse 6. And then in Revelation 22, 18 to 19, where it actually comes with a curse if you do these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's how the early Christians felt. That's how the early Jews felt as well. Uh, Kruger goes through Josephus. He said the same thing. He goes through some of the earliest Christian writings, uh, the Didache, uh, in around the year 100. Papius, around the same time, uh, Polycarp around 110, uh, the Epistle of Barnabas about 130, they all said, no, you mustn't change. And, and some of them actually would, would invoke that curse, like curse anyone who dares to change, any word of scripture. Yeah. Uh, Dionysius of Corinth around 170, uh, Irenaeus around 180. Uh, mm -hmm. So a lot of them, so the, the point is that the rules that uh, Griesbach put forth might sound good on the surface. They might seem to make sense, and they did to him. The actual evidence destroys them all. Mm. The actual evidence says, no, the scribes did not take it upon themselves to change the text. Yeah. They wouldn't dare to do that. Yeah, who would, yeah. And in that case, this is the whole, I said, the, the, all of modern-day textual criticism, mainstream textual criticism, is based on these rules. Um. I don't know if you've heard of Westcott Hort, he came along, but uh, really it goes back to these rules. And the one principle that underlies them is that scribes took it upon themselves to change the text where they wanted to change it. And the actual evidence says, no, that didn't happen. Yeah, That's not the way it was. Which means the entire edifice of mainstream textual criticism comes crashing down. Yeah. It's done. Yeah. That's really interesting you said that because it really is like there's that overlay assumption of skepticism whenever you say that we're adding to the text. And if, I mean, again, going through the process of having to make a hand copy, you wouldn't think that these, <laughs> that you're going to take on that task so that you can doctor it up. It would actually, like, if you think about making a mistake 
adding to the text cannot be a mistake. That is an act of, as you mentioned, uh, I mean, if you, where, where are the checks and balances for someone that just comes and just basically yeah. adds a bunch of stuff. Now, if someone leaves some stuff off, you can see how that can be a, a complete mistake, how yeah. you, you, you missed it. Um, so just looking at it from that point of view, um, and, and, and again, you, I don't imagine you're going to have like skeptics and, um, and apostates being your scribes here. You're going to have those mm -hmm. that are, are dedicated and have a, a love for the word of God to take yeah. on that work. So that's a really good point. Yeah. One, one, uh. Uh, caveat there though every once in a while an addition could be accidental it, it did happen um and where that would happen is uh if you look at these this yeah manuscript you see a really wide margins right mm -hmm. and you see occasional little um comments in the side mm -hmm. these there yeah. so, sometimes they would make like these these little uh annotations and every once in a while, a scribe might come along, he sees the little annotations, like a commentary. And he thought it was part of the original text, so he would just include it. So every once in a while, you could get, um, you, you could get an addition by, uh, by mistake, you know, in good faith, but they were very, very, very rare. And uh, <laughs> I'm jumping ahead here, but uh, a, a bit... Imagine if you do that, you accidentally add something. Okay? And, and I'll give you one example. Like here's a difference between what you would see in your NASB, your NIV, your ESV, your NRSV, your CSB, all of them. In Mark chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, you read, uh, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare a way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In the King James Version and the New King James Version, what you read is, as it is written in the prophets, not as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Um, and the one that says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, is a mistake. Because if you look at the two passages there, uh, you look at the two passages, you see the first one is from uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Mm -hmm. And the second one is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So the reading of Isaiah is a mistake. Now, how did that get into the text? Probably that got in by uh, somebody recognizing the second quote and, uh, mm. and, and writing into the margin just kind of as a commentary. And... Uh, and, and then and ascribe added. But here's the thing. When you make a mistake like that, or any mistake for that matter, uh, when you make a mistake, that's in your manuscript that you copied. But how many other manuscripts are out there already? Thousands of them, right? Mm -hmm. Hundreds of them. None of them have your mistake. You just put into your one. Any copies made of your manuscript, yeah, it'll reproduce the error. But at the same time, there's hundreds or thousands of others who don't have the error. So any error that any scribe introduces, even if it were intentional, would only ever be in a very, very, very small minority of the manuscripts. 
Right. Right? Yeah. Uh, now, this particular one, uh, as it is written in the prophets, the correct reading, it's in about 1,700 manuscripts of Mark. Wow. The, uh, the mistake, Isaiah, it's in 14. Not 1,400, 14. Which one does the critical text pick? Well, it'll yeah. pick the one that puts a mistake into sure. the Bible. Sure. And this is why your NIV, That's here, cool. ESV, oh, you'll see Isaiah the prophet. And we see that again and again and again. Uh, Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. You read through the genealogy and you recognize the names of all those kings from the Old Testament uh, until you get to... Uh, in verse 7 8, you get uh, Abijah, the, the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, uh, down to uh, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah. You see a problem there. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Well, if you look at the Old Testament, uh, not just the um, genealogies, but you look at the entire text, documenting the history of the king. The guy's name is Asa. And uh, Manasseh's son is named Ammon. Yeah, and they were kings. Asaph was a psalmist. Yeah, he was one of the Levites. He wrote psalms. That's why yeah. in some of the, the psalms you see this uh, psalm of Asaph. Yeah. And Amos was a prophet. And, and he lived before Manasseh was even born. So these are mistakes. It should say... Uh, yeah, Uziah, uh, Joshua begot Joram, Joram begot and so begot Asa and Ammon, not Asaph and Amos. Those are mistakes. Very clear and obvious and clumsy mistakes. Yeah. Man, man. 98% of manuscripts have it correct. They have Asa, they have Ammon. Less than 2% of the manuscripts have this mistake. Which one do you think gets into the NIV and the ESV? You know what's really interesting? That is because that, that's such a good point because this is really, I think, where the rubber meets the road is what argument are you going to kind of find more convincing that the earliest manuscripts are, are going to be more reliable or that the majority, the ones we have more copies of, are going to be more reliable? And then there is a sense... Um, that the proof is in the pudding uh, uh, a little bit. And I want to talk about that here in a sec, but I think there's there's a facade because the NIV, the ESV, the NSAB are so popular and they're so widely distributed now as English translations that they're, the concept of a minority a very, very minority, as, as you just pointed out, is completely lost. It's just like, well, we have all these translations, and then we have basically this group versus that group. So it sort of seems like they're on equal playing ground. But if you're actually looking at the manuscripts that, that actually hold to one reading, it's so far outweighed that that's a really strong argument to say, are you going to go with this small minority or the majority here? Uh, and again, man, when the majority reads like correctly, I guess, are you going to, are you under the impression that our Bibles had to get kind of fixed up? Um, and were you just going to stick the mistakes in there? Uh, so it's, it's, 
that's just kind of the, the crux of the debate. Um, but for me, there has been some readings where I think the proof is in the pudding. Which one yeah. of these actually reads like it should? Um, and that that's kind of where, you know, I found to be kind of convincing as well. Um, but you keep mentioning these, these, these translations. For those that are unfamiliar, um, which, you know, English translations are you going to find that follow the critical versus those that follow the majority? Uh, King James Version follows the Textus Receptus, which is kind of a subset of the majority. It's not exactly the same, yep. but it's close. Uh, New King James, same thing. Uh, and there's something called the Modern English Version. You might have heard of it, or King James 21. Uh, and there's one not very well known called the English Majority Text Version. Uh, but those are like really small players in the field. It's it's yeah. mainly King James, New King James, follow the Textus Receptus, which is not exactly majority text, but close. Every other one uses the critical text, whether it's New International Version, English Standard Version, uh, New American Standard Bible, uh, Revised Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version, Good News Bible, New Living Translation, mm -hmm. every single one of them. Yeah, so... I just want to make that clear for those that kind of, you know, when we're talking about this, which Bibles are going to read one way versus the other. Um, so you mentioned Textus, Textus Receptus as a subset of the majority. Um, what do you mean by that? What What is really going to be the difference between what you, we find in the text? You know, what is the Textus Receptus? Yeah. How is that different from the majority? Okay. The Textus Receptus, as I said before, was that printed one that began with Erasmus. And then by the time it got to the second Elsevier Brothers edition was, was you know, given the name Textus Receptus. Um, and it was supposedly the, the Greek text from which the New Testament of the King James Version was translated. It's, it's, a bit, uh, it's a bit unclear because there are so many now, so many different printed Greek New Testaments on the Textus Receptus, they weren't exactly the same, and nobody knows for sure exactly which Textus Receptus was behind the King James Version. Um, and generally, the only people who insist on Textus Receptus are, are the people, the so-called King James only people, the ones who think that the King James only, King James Bible was divinely inspired as the only proper Bible. And so, Supporting Texas Receptus is almost as a result of supporting the King James Bible. Yeah, gotcha. uh, but it it really because it was based on just a few uh, Greek manuscripts and late manuscripts, they they don't properly represent the majority. They're much closer than the so-called critical texts, but they're not exactly there. Uh, there are even some some translations the New King in the King James version that don't exist anywhere in any Greek manuscript, which is very strange. Uh, but we understand Erasmus, when he was putting together his uh, his Greek New Testament, that those 10 manuscripts, none of them had the last chapter of Revelation in it. So he had to actually translate from the Latin Vulgate, translate it into Greek, and that went into his, uh, his edition. And in doing so, he created some readings that are not, don't exist in any Greek manuscript at all. Mm -hmm. um, for example, in, in that curse, uh, I will take away his place from what? Book of Life or Tree of Life? King James has Book of Life, but not even one Greek manuscript anywhere in the world has that. They all say Tree of Life. Hmm. Um, 
Now, I want to address the issue of, of the earliest, because that's another one of these things that sound good to people when you hear, shouldn't the earliest be the best? Um, but again, from an engineering point of view, you need to look at the evidence and, and assess them. Are they really the best? When they say that, they're talking about these two so great unsealed manuscripts from the fourth century, uh, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. Have you heard those names? Yes. Yeah. So these are the two that were found at that time, and scholars push that oh these are the best yeah yeah now why they pushed it is is another story it's 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 missing the last 12 verses of mark so no resurrection in mark so it was a, became a great opportunity to completely undermine the resurrection this is why they pushed them hmm. but if you're going to say that these are the best i'm going to ask you which one because if they're the best they should be very close to each other right hmm. yeah uh, a fellow named Hermann Hosker, he sat down in the early 20th century. He decided he was going to compare the two manuscripts side by side, flag every difference between them. Uh, just, just for reference sake, he thought it would be a quick task. He thought it would be very short because he left out things like spelling mistakes, minor things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He filled two huge volumes and then he gave up. And now he just got through the gospel books. He didn't even get into anything else. Oh There's nothing else. And in them. Yeah, in them, he found that these two, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, contradict each other 3,036 times. My gosh. Just the gospel books. Wow. So as, as, as uh, some scholars pointed out, it's easier to find two consecutive verses where these manuscripts contradict each other than to find two consecutive verses where they, they say the same thing. They're horrible quality. Uh, Codex Vaticanus, I mean, it leaves out whole words, whole clauses... 1,491 times in the gospel accounts, full of repetitions. Sinaiticus drops out 10, 20, 30, 40 words just out of carelessness. Uh, they will start sentences, the scribe started it, wrote it over again, repeated, or started and stopped. Uh, they're very, very poor quality. Um, and, and But that's supposed to be the best. So we should be looking at absolute standards of quality. We, we can't say they're the best just because they're oldest. We have to look at the actual quality, and the quality is horrible. Yeah. And then before that, they, they then after they found these even earlier material, the papyri, papyrus materials, again, we're told, oh, these support the uh, you know, the critical text manuscripts. No, they don't. No, they don't. And they're horrible. They're worse, actually. Uh, the, the earliest substantial one is designated P66, supposed to come from the first half of the second century. It's uh, about 91% complete Gospel according to John, 808 verses. In 808 verses, it has 400 itices, and that's where they got the vowels wrong, and another 482, they call singular readings, like readings that aren't found anywhere else among all the manuscripts. Wow. And 40% of those are complete nonsense. They cannot possibly write. They don't even make any sense. So imagine that. That's like if you copied out the gospel according to John by hand, do you think you would make two mistakes in every single verse? Yeah, that's crazy. That's what the same thing, P75. We're told that's good. 145 witticisms, 257 singer. They're all garbage. <laughs> now, unfortunately, literally. Uh, this is another thing that uh, I wrote a paper on this in my, uh, on my website um, that people don't take into serious enough consideration. Uh, there was a scholar, uh, uh, Loyendijk, I think her name was, uh, who wrote it about this in Vigilae Christianae in 2010. 
something that the scholars try to overlook is all of the manuscripts, almost all the papyri, whose provenance, in other words, know where they originally were found, they all came out of a giant garbage heap outside of Egypt, a place called Oxyrhynchus. was a place where, where the people dumped their garbage for centuries. And some, some scholars, Grenfell and Hunt, back in the, the late 19th century, started digging among the garbage to see what they could find. And they found scraps, documents that people had ripped up and thrown out. And among these, they found scraps of the New Testament. Uh, and, and these are the oldest material we have. Um, and everybody wants, all the scholars want to gloss over the fact that they, these are not just garbage, but they were ripped up and thrown out. The question is why? And uh, Leyendijk tries to come up with, with a variety of uh, explanations, but they don't work. So, oh, maybe it's from the persecution. Maybe it's the Romans doing it. Well, but the material goes through the fourth, fifth, sixth century, long after... Christianity was the official religion, and there was no persecution. Uh, the only explanation that makes sense is the owners ripped them up and threw them out because they were so corrupted. They're so full of mistakes, there's no point holding on to them. It's the only viable explanation. And so then we find their garbage, and we say, oh, this is the best text. And it, it caused me to ask, you know, who is crazier? Who's crazier? The uh, liberal scholar who thinks the pure word of God is garbage? Or the textual critic who thinks that garbage is a pure word of God. Yeah, man. Um, so that's why the earliest is definitely like by measurable standards, the earliest material is not the best. Yeah, absolutely not the best. This is yeah. the early material we have is just not good. Yeah, I mean it. Sound it does sound good because you feel like you're you're closer to the original. That that's that's really the argument. But yeah. then again. Yeah, it's, it's yeah you would think all things being equal that would make sense but right. all things aren't equal here like you, yeah. the, the actual measurable quality overrides the theoretical presumption sure and just like why is it why is there just the one why is there just the one copy that reads that way well you know where where's it's kind of like the majority the argument is like there's there's just safety in numbers here it's the majority it was accepted yeah. amongst the the masses right yeah. you know it's like the way you're describing it, it's like geez it could be someone's like notebook they just threw you know it's like what, what i don't know it's um if once you adopt that it's almost like you are just kind of you've got your hands open to any manuscript that comes along to saying, okay, well now we're this takes precedent, and we are we can just very easily now say this should read like this. And it it again when it comes to inerrancy, it's almost like well you can find yourself reading the Bible and say, well this is what it this is how it reads, but we don't really know, we can't really trust it, and it kind of just undermines the Word of God. That, that's 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 tough. I don't know. Uh, that can be yeah. tough. I. I, I want to get to. I want to get to that. I'm going to come circle back around that to at the end of the interview. But I want to talk now, as far as like kind of getting into some of the nitty gritty. Um, mm -hmm. Why does it really matter? What what are these differences? Are, you know, as I mentioned, are they significant? Are they not? So you already mentioned earlier, one example, um, where we have. Isaiah the prophet versus the prophets. Um, one's clearly a mistake, one's not. Mm -hmm. 
And again, if you take one philosophy, you can just kind of gloss over that and say, well, there's a little, there's a little scribal error there. Um, yeah. Whoopity-doo. Uh, so what are going to be some of these um, differences that we see amongst, you know, your KJV versus your ESV that you would say um, are going to be the, the kind of the, the most uh, debated or kind of the mm -hmm. most significant yeah. of those differences? Yeah. Yeah. Even before specific examples, in terms of the differences, right? this is your Nestle Allond, your critical texts. Mm -hmm. okay? And this was put together by, again, when you divide this, uh, when you're deciding among the variants, you go by those rules. Mm -hmm. okay? This this was the, the Hodges Farstaff majority text. And this is put together basically by look at each point of variation, what is read in most of the manuscripts. And what is read in most of the manuscripts goes into the text. So yeah. those are the two different approaches. Yeah. How different are they? Well, between these two, there are 6,577 translator differences. Hmm. What that comes to is like 25 per chapter in the Bible. Wow. That's how many differences there are. Uh, if you had a 600-page Greek New Testament, there would be a full 48 pages would be completely different. Uh, oh. and, and by the way, the Nestle Allen, the, the critical text would be 10 full pages shorter. So 10 pages of material is completely omitted. Hmm. And then from the Christian point of view, where you read Jesus saying, you know, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 and Psalm 119, verse 160, it says, the entirety of your word is truth. I find it problematic if we're dropping 10 full pages of God's word. That, that's already a problem. Yeah. Um, and then as far as the specific variants go, because the rules are such that the, the errors will get into, uh, the NIV and ASB Bibles and so on, Critical text gives you errors of fact in what's supposed to be the original text, errors of science, geography, theological problems, uh, the omission of important theological passages, makes the Bible look silly, and makes Jesus seem deceptive, if not an outright liar. Mm. I can give you examples of every one of those. Yeah, no, that's what I want to get into. Yeah, let, let's... Okay. Let's get into these verses, and yeah. you know, we'll just see how many we, we we can get in. You don't have to go in the nitty gritty, but just sure. point out the the differences, and you know, we can pick up the implications yeah. from there. Yeah. So we went through Mark one, uh, two, and then we went through those those problems in the genealogy. Mm -hmm. um, Luke twenty three forty five. Okay? Remember, Jesus is on the cross, and and there's darkness over the whole land. Okay? Says. Uh, Matthew says Mark. Uh, Luke says uh, the sun was darkened. Fine. Six manuscripts of Luke, only six, saying that the sun was eclipsed. Okay. Now, the ESV and ASB will, will mistranslate that to try to hide the fact, but that word, the Greek word, eklepontos, eclipsed, only means like an actual eclipse of the sun. Uh, now, it's not possible to have an eclipse of the sun at the Passover because the Passover happens at the full moon. So this is a blatant scientific error and also says they can't possibly be an eyewitness testimony. Right. Only six manuscripts have that out of about you know 1,700. 
but the the NIV, the critical text, puts it in. <laughs> the ESV will translate as while the sun's light failed, but they're hiding what it really says there, unfortunately. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, according to the B tag, which is the, the the standard Greek lexicon from New Testament Greek, says no, when it's in reference to the sun or moon, it means eclipse. Hmm. Uh, John 7 and 8, this is where uh, Jesus' brothers who don't believe in him are goading him into going to the feast. They know that the hit order is out on Jesus already, and they're still go, egging him to go down to the feast. And Jesus says, you go down to the feast. I'm not yet going down to the feast. And after he went down to the feast, okay, not a problem. So I'm not yet going down, right? Yeah. Ooh. But in nine manuscripts, they changed. In nine manuscripts, they change not yet going down to the feast to not going down to the feast. So it reads, Jesus tells us, but you go down to the feast. I'm not going to the feast, but after he went secretly. <laughs> At best, Jesus is deceptive there. Worse, it's an outright lie. Yeah. It's yeah. only in nine yeah. manuscripts. It sort of bothered me. It was like, why is he lying to his brothers? And again, you could gloss it up and say he's being deceptive. Perhaps his brothers, you know, we know they don't believe in him. Probably they're, they're taunting him. Yeah. We know he's going in secret. Um, so, but again, when you point out the fact that it's so, it's such a minor number, and you read the alternate, you know, the majority, it's like, well, okay. Not yet. <laughs> I'm a lot more comfortable with him saying yet. <laughs> um, I think I'll go with that, but go ahead. Yeah, I remember one time I was doing a presentation on this for, for an apologetics ministry, and one guy, like, he, he was so excited because i just been reading that part about john 7 8 and it was bothering me yeah it is this. it really is uh, yeah so so that's making jesus look dumb here here's an example of a theological problem uh in john 118 uh, it says no one has seen god at any time the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father has declared him okay? the only begotten son perfect sense right jesus is the begotten son 0.4% of the manuscripts read the only begotten God. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a huge theological problem because God is, is eternally existent. He's, he's exists from eternity to the past. He, he cannot be begotten. That's something that only applies to, to created beings. So Jesus begotten as a man, it refers to his incarnation. Yeah. There's no such thing as a begotten God. Yeah, but a very, 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 very small number of manuscripts have begotten God, and that's what gets into your NASB because mm -hmm. that's what gets into the critical text, right? Uh, making the Bible look silly. Uh, John chapter five, you have that account where there's the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, and uh, and he's, he's looking for somebody to put him in the water because an angel comes and stirs up uh, the water, and then uh. Whoever gets in first gets healed. And Jesus comes to him and says, uh, do you want to be made well? And he says, I don't want to put me in the water, right? Makes perfect sense. But the critical text drops out verses 2 to 4. Okay? Only 11 manuscripts drop these out. So it just says, there's a pool uh, with, with five colonnades, pool of Bethesda. There was a layman there. Jesus asked him, do you want to make, be made well? He says, I don't want to put me in the water. It makes no sense. How is that an answer to do you want to be made well without that explanation? Mm -hmm. It makes no sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, wow. Missing important uh, theological passages. 
particularly Christological ones. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.16, uh, it reads, uh, you know, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, uh, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory, right? Very clear statement of the deity of Christ. God was manifested in the flesh. Okay? You won't see that in your NIV, ESV, NASB, because the critical text has, great is the mystery of godliness, who was manifested in the flesh. And they change God to who, which can't be right. I mean, grammatically, it makes no sense. Yeah, You, you can't have a, a, a demonstrative pronoun. <laughs> That doesn't have an antecedent to it. Yeah, godliness. But they change that. And then some of the translations will change it to he, which is completely dishonest. No manuscript says he. That's wild. And again, wild. only four Greek manuscripts and three lectionary manuscripts. That's all that have who. That's so wild. Wow. Uh, and it's not the only example. Acts 20, 28, where Paul is uh, is doing his final farewell to the Ephesian elders, and he's warning them to, to take care of the church of of God, which he purchased with his own blood. <laughs> when did God purchase the church with his own blood? That's that's obviously uh, God the Son. That's Jesus Christ. No, no, the uh, critical text, following a very small number of manuscripts, says, uh, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with the blood of his own. And that uh, reference to the deity of Christ is lost. Hmm, that's... that's... And this is where I go back to the, the proof is in the pudding. It's sort of like, you know, the argument on the critical text side is that all this stuff is fixed. <laughs> but, you know, then again, it's like to admit that is to admit that what we have is, um, it's almost like a, a downgrade. Really, I, I hate to say that, but like if you if you just boom, 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 you know, look at these differences as you listed, you know, I feel like we have a, a preferred version. Um, and so the assumption is that the preferred version is preferred because it's been doctored. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we probably keep going. And I think this is a nice springboard for people that if are new to the kind of topic. Again, my hope is to kind of dig in deeper and that sort of thing, um, which I'll, I'll, you know, continue to do. I, I read with a with like three different translations. I like to kind of go back and forth. Um, so my question for you is for someone that's hearing this kind of for the first time, um, you know, that's sort of wowed or, or bothered by it, what is the solution? Are, are we to like throw out our ESV? Are we going to, are we supposed to be like KJV only? Are we going to learn Greek? Um, you know, w what would you suggest for someone, again, that's just uh, bothered by it? Yeah, I, see, I wouldn't recommend King James Version. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a very good translation. It's got some notable errors in it. It's a very good translation. Uh, the problem is the language. A lot of it has changed meaning through sure. the centuries. And it not just makes some parts not understandable, but also makes you think some parts uh, mean other than what they do. Like if I say something like, for example, a God prevents me, what does that mean? Well, stops me from doing something. But in King James time, prevent just meant goes before. Mm -hmm. So by here you won't even realize that if, if you came across some some obscure word that you don't know then you know okay maybe this is old king james english but the words like this that have changed meaning where you don't even realize yeah and so you read some difference so i would go with new king james version that would be my recommendation 
and a study edition that's got the little center column uh, notes so you can see where the majority text actually reads something different oh, and, and pay attention to those. Uh, but I don't want to leave people on a uh, kind of this, this discouraging thing as if we can't really know. Uh, right. We can. This is the thing about the majority text theory is it's, it's based on actual scientific data handling and specifically probability analysis. Mm. Uh, once those rules are shown to be wrong, and they are, what you're left with then is you have, you have you know, 5,800 manuscripts, each of them an independent witness to the original text, and the variants are due to random errors. And so once you have like a large population and you have a, uh, a and you have random errors, then you can bring in probability analysis, can and must. And it's simple, it's simple to do. Suppose you have you have the original autograph, the, the thing that came off the pen of the uh, the apostle or the prophet. And you make say 10 copies of it. What are the chances? that a scribe would make a mistake in any one word. Well, it's random, right? Yeah. So what, what I did in my uh, thesis, I took the, the sloppiest manuscript we know, P66, with its 882 errors and 880 verses, and now how many errors per word? And it's like one every 16 or 17 words. I said, let's get even a lot more slop here. Let's say a scribe could make an error every 10 words. That's sloppier than any existing manuscript by a lot. Sure. But we'll go with that just to, to give every chance to the other side. What are the chances that a scribe would make a mistake in any given word in text? It's one in 10, right? What are the chances that the second scribe would make the same mistake in the same word? Whether they make a mistake in the same word, it's one in 10. Mm -hmm. What are the chances that a scribe, the third scribe, would make a mistake in the same word? One in 10. Okay. You got 10 manuscripts to infect the majority of the textual tradition. How many scribes would have to make that same mistake? Yeah. At least six out of the 10, right? Yeah, it had to be, yeah. What are the chances of that? One tenth times one in 10 times one in 10 times one in 10 times one in 10 times one in 10. One in a million. Wow. And if you say one in a million, well, that's that's not, you know, it's not impossible. But then you have to look at the uh, what's called the expected return. There's 140,005 words in the New Testament. At one in a million times 140,005, you would expect a minority reading to infect 0.14 times. You'd expect like less than one eighth of a word to be wrong right. in the entire New Testament. And this is this is solid. Probability analysis. The majority text is is the word of God. Yeah, it wow. doesn't have mistakes. It doesn't have these yeah, errors in so it. Wild. You don't wow. have to worry. Right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And that was one uh, argument that you had in, in, in the debate that I referenced earlier that I thought um, was really solid. I didn't hear anybody take it from that point of view. But if you just if you just think about it, cr you know, critically about making copies, you're you're right. It would it would be so so difficult um for an actual you know mistake to really become the majority that's uh yeah. that is such it, a good point it can't and that's why every one of these 
places where they differ, the, the correct text reading is always only a very, very, very few manuscripts. It never comes close to, to equal, let alone dominating the tradition. Wow. So that we know that they cannot be right. And, and unfortunately, like this is you know, my background as an engineer, but unfortunately, textual critics collectively, what they know about scientific data handling could probably be written on the back of a postage stamp with room left over for the U.S. Constitution. Uh, they, they don't understand it. Uh, they hate it. They fear it. But you, you can't do this right if you don't apply scientific data handling. You can't call textual criticism a science and then not do this. Yeah. But they don't know how to. Yeah. So I have one final question, and this was one that I think that came up towards the end of the debate. Um, but I thought it was actually a, a very good um, objection. So, and that, that's about the, the Septuagint. And so, you know, the argument is when we look at New Testament quotations of the old, we often mm -hmm. see that they're actually quoting the Septuagint. Um, so the argument follows that that kind of is a, it's a precedent for the the critical text model. Um, so I guess, what would be your response to that objection to say that um, what we find happening here in the New Testament shows um, that the critical text is actually the correct approach and the approach of the New Testament writers? Yeah, I'm not seeing the parallel between the two. Okay. Elaborate. So I, I guess it's like they had access to the the Masoretic, but they went with the the Septuagint, and so in, in that case, they have like the the the, the translation um, which differs from the uh, the Masoretic. Ah, okay, I understand. No, okay, they couldn't quote from the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text was compiled by scribes between the 6th and 9th centuries AD. Because they started compiling the Masoretic right. text a good 500 years after New Testament times. There was no Masoretic text to quote from. Sure. Um, the, the quotes that they say are from the Septuagint, uh, many of them are similar. They're not all identical. It use and we know that it sides much more towards Septuagint-like readings than Masoretic text readings. And it always used to be assumed that, well, Masoretic text is Hebrew. It's got to be correct. Anytime it disagrees with the Septuagint, the Septuagint is wrong. And we kept on thinking that all the way until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we had manuscripts going back to 3rd, 2nd century BC, 1st century BC, 1st century AD, so very much overlapping with, with Jesus' time. And we found that in many cases, those Hebrew manuscripts agreed with the Septuagint, not with the Masoretic text. Right. Hmm. Yeah. So I would say the New Testament is not quoting the Septuagint. It's quoting the Hebrew text that they had before them, which actually was more like the Septuagint than the Masoretic text is. In the rest that's of the changed yeah. and and there were there were church fathers i think argon or tertullian who were saying yeah the, the jews are changing their text to hide jesus hmm. uh, and there's this one one clear example of that and it's in psalm uh, 22 the lament of the man on the cross and you know that 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 key verse where it says they pierced my hands and my feet 
Uh, and that, that's so significant as a prophecy because this was written by David around, you know, 1000 BC. Yeah. And crucifixion wasn't even invented until about 500 BC. 500 years later, there was no crucifixion. Yeah. And yet here it is prophesied. But if you look at the Masoretic text, it doesn't say they pierced my hands and my feet. It says, like a lion, my hands and my feet. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. And which doesn't, again, grammatically, that doesn't make sense. It can't be right. But then it says, nope, nope. Masoretic text, right? Septuagint wrong. You're just, you're just saying this to, to put Jesus in there. And we finally actually found a copy. It wasn't in the Dead Sea. It was nearby. Uh, Nahal Hever, a copy of, uh, of that part of Psalm 22. The oldest one we had maybe goes back as far as 50 BC for Jesus, Hebrew, and it said, they pierced my hands and my feet. So the Hebrew, the Hebrew did originally say pierced. The Masoretic text changed it. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, so maybe the argument is like, it's kind of like, what you're arguing there is that the, the Septuagint is, you know, the the is is correct, whereas the Masoretic has changed. Whereas the Masoretic we now know is really more majority. So I guess the yeah. argument kind of goes like, if the Septuagint, being the older of the translation, um, I, I think I think that was the argument is shouldn't isn't that the critical text model? Um, that's that's the question I meant to pose. Yeah, but I, I don't think the New Testament writers quoted the Septuagint because it was older, because in their day it wasn't older. Mm. And their day, they had, all, the, all those manuscripts were found in the Dead Sea. Those were all like living manuscripts at the time of the apostles. So the Septuagint was not the oldest. Yeah, that, just, that uh, would have been the majority of their of their day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got you. And, and plus, the uh, New Testament is God-breathed, which means God picked the exact wording he wanted there, mm -hmm. not described. Sure, sure. That's a good point. That's a good point. Wow. All right. All right. Cool. Um, well, again, this is such a fascinating um, subject, and I think it's one it is not talked to, en enough about, so I'm just thrilled to, to be able to do an episode about it. Um, and I, again, you have uh, compelling arguments, and I, I was just hoping to just kind of expose um, at least, you know, my podcast, my listeners to, to this topic, because I, I think it's one that, that it does matter. Um, oh, yeah. And, yeah. and it, when it boils down to it, we all read uh, a, a certain translation and to, to know that they read different um, based off of, you know, what Greek manuscripts you're going off of, I think is, is a mm -hmm. question that one, everyone should at least grapple with and, and, and yeah. try to figure out um, and let that be a deciding factor as far as like which translation they're, they're choosing. Because most of the time it's like, I just like the way this one reads. It's easier to understand. So that's the one I'm going to go with. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I, I'll invite you to uh, kind of plug your um, plug yourself as far as how people can get in touch with yeah. you or, you know, projects and things you've worked on. Uh, yeah. Give any closing thoughts. Sure. Yeah. People who find this interesting and want to get more into it. Uh, we have quite a number of articles uh, on our website. That's a truthinmydays.com. Uh, under textual criticism, uh, so you, you can read a lot about the more about this, more details. Uh, your suggestion before, by the way, about uh, learning Greek—it's not a bad suggestion, and uh, mm -hmm. we do offer actually uh, Greek lessons. And everybody's interested cool. on Zoom. Awesome. Uh, 
So yeah, that's about it. We've uh, awesome. uh, we've got a podcast going. We do a radio show, but mm -hmm. only available in Western Canada at the moment. Okay, I'll put a link to the website. Um, that's a uh, that's fantastic. I might put a link to the debate that I referenced uh, a couple times, which is kind of what uh, s s you know sprung me having you on on the show. Um, but yeah, give any, uh, you know, closing thoughts. And then if you would, uh, you can close us out in prayer. Sure. Well, a different debate. I don't know if you're interested in that, but I debated Shabir Ali also on, uh, Islam, and that was a, kind of a fun one too. <laughs> if you haven't seen that, you might like to look it up. Okay, cool. All right. So let's close with prayer then. All right. Your Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. You've given us your word, your perfect word, whereby we may know you. As Jesus said, and scripture cannot be broken. We're so happy, Lord, that we can have full confidence in your word. We know there are those who try to undermine our confidence, but Lord, your word stands forever. We pray, Lord, that uh, Christians, all, all your people, Lord, that they might be confident in the word and study the true word uh, and know you better and live in a way that pleases you, Lord. In Jesus' name, we ask these and pray. Amen. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with somebody you know. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.